name's Tammy, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Tammy. Good Lord, I didn't know there was this many drunks in Kentucky. Woo! <laughs> I want to thank the committee for inviting me, Dick. Um, it's always a privilege and an honor to do anything for Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to also thank all my friends from Louisville. Where are you at, Louisville? All right! <laughs> They love me in Louisville. Um, it's good to see you guys, it really is. And I want to thank Tina for coming with me. Um, whew, I'm a little nervous, I always am when I speak. Um, I tell you the, uh, see Clint, see I get a little sympathy in here. The first time I ever spoke, um, they took us out from an institution, and I tell you, I was just a nervous wreck, I, but I would have done anything to get out of that institution. I would have tried to sing a song if I had to. So I went and spoke at this AA meeting, and I was holding the podium, a nervous wreck, and started putting my foot up on the shelf, and it had wheels on it, and the whole thing went rolling out the floor. <laughs> And all these old-timers were looking at me like, what in the hell is she doing to our podium? And that was my first experience with speaking. After I got sober, and I've been sober a little over a year, um, I spoke at a group in Selma, Alabama, and uh, it was an old building, and it was about to fall down. And I went in there and put my purse on the sink, uh, and I was going to pray like I do, and the whole sink came off the wall. <laughs> So I pushed it back on the wall, I went and sat down, and five seconds later, water started shooting out of the bathroom. You know, it busted the pipe. So that was my next experience speaking. So I'm always just a nervous wreck, and when I get up here, and this thing is shaking, so I hope we, we make it through it. But anyway, I want to thank y'all for inviting me to your state convention. What an honor. Um, there's a few things I think are real important. First of all, my sobriety date is July the 16th, 1991. Uh, that may not mean a lot to you, but it means a lot to me. Um, I have a home group, the Prattville Downtown Group in Prattville, Alabama, and I have a sponsor, and I think all those things are very important. Um, I'm gonna tell you a little tonight about what happened to me and what it was like and you know what, what I'm like today and what it's like. Um, you know, I always wanted to be a funny speaker. I told my sponsor one time, I just love funny speakers. And I just, I, that's what I want to be, a funny speaker. And she, she said, well, Tammy, your story's pretty sad. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know any jokes. I wish I did, but I don't. So I'm just going to get started here. Um, I'll tell you, I was born in, in Montgomery, Alabama, and um, my mom was real young when she got pregnant. She was 17, and back in the 60s, that wasn't real popular. My dad was 17. Um, he had long hair, and he sh uh, shot pool for a living and sold a little dope on the side. And So I guess you could say right away I wasn't from the Leave it to Beaver family. And uh, that's the way it all started out. And um, growing up, I can tell you, um, I hear a lot of speakers say this, I always felt different. And it was like that for me. I, I never fit in. I mean, I didn't fit in with the cool kids. I didn't fit in with sports. I didn't fit in at church. I was raised Catholic. Any Catholics? Uh, you know, I could never keep up. And, and you know, sit, kneel, stand. Sit, kneel, stand. It's just so confusing. And I stayed in trouble in church. My grandmother used to have me by the ear. And um, I didn't fit in there. And I didn't fit anywhere. And it was like that for me until I was 12 years old. And I took my first drink of alcohol. Now, I don't remember a lot about my childhood, but I remember the night I took my first drink. 
Um, we got drunk on red malt duck, and that was a popular thing back then. Me and my best friend, we lived in the projects, and I lived upstairs, she lived downstairs, and we snuck off. And I can remember as I drank that red wine, and it went down, and it hit me. It was like a magical potion. Something happened to me that night, and I had found a solution for, to live in this skin. I felt as pretty as, as funny as, life meant something at last. You know, I heard a speaker say one time there was only two things that ever made a difference in his, in his life, and it was that first drink of alcohol and Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'm here to tell you today that that is so true in my life because that night changed my life forever because I found magic. It was like a magical potion. Now, I got in trouble the first night I got drunk, and I can tell you I got in a lot of trouble after that drinking. But the first night, me and my friend got drunk on that red wine. And now remember, I'm 12 years old. My best friend is 11 years old. We made it home. I made it to my room. I didn't get caught by my mom. You know, the room was spinning. I was about to throw up, but I didn't get caught. Well, my best friend goes home, and she starts throwing up. And her mother comes in there, and she says, well, honey, have you been drinking Kool-Aid? And she said, no. Eating red candy? No. So her mom rushed to the emergency room and thought she was hemorrhaging. And the doctor came out laughing and said, there's nothing wrong with this kid, but she's drunk on red wine. Her mom called my mom. My mom beat me half to death, put me on restriction for 10 years, whatever it was, you know. <laughs> it really didn't matter what the consequences were because I had found magic. You know, they talk about this line, you cross into alcoholism, and I don't know nothing about all that. I really don't. But if there is a line, I can tell you I crossed it that night. Because from that moment on, my whole life started centering around alcohol. Now, I was 12 years old, so of course I couldn't drink every day. But if I wasn't drinking, I was planning it, I was thinking about it, that it consumed every thought from the time I was 12 years old. So that's, the way, that's how it started, you know, and from that point I started doing other things. I started smoking other things, taking other things, and, you know, drugs were part of it. Now, I know a lot of times you say the word drugs in an AA meeting, and some of these old-timers go, <gasps> and I'm always like, well, if you hadn't smoked a joint and you were born after 1930, where were you? You know, I mean, that's... <laughs> That's just kind of what we did, you know, and I'm not going to stand up here and talk about it, but it was part of it. I'll kind of sum up my drug story like this. My Uncle Clarence was a wino, and he was a wino like we view alcoholics. He had the trench coat. He drank his wine in a paper bag. You know, he lived under the bridge. You know, he got a check the first of the month. He'd come home. We'd rob him. He'd go back under the bridge. I mean, he was a real wino like we know winos. And one night I'd been out all night and I woke up sick and I said, Clarence, give me a drink of that wine. And I took a big old drink of his wild Irish rose. See, I, I see some of y'all have had that. Fine wine, a fine wine. Took a big old drink of it and I spit it out and I looked at Clarence and I said, Clarence, you ain't nothing but a wine oh. And that man looked back at me with all the disgust you can imagine and he said, at least I'm not a any o. You'll do any damn thing. Now, Clarence summed up. There, that's my story. I was an any o. I would drink Crown Royal, Mad Dog 2020. If you gave me a handful of pills, I just took them. You know, it could be X-Lax or anything, you know. 
So Clarence summed me up. I was an NEO, you know, and that's, that's the way my life was going. So by the time I was in the eighth grade, uh, I quit school. You know, my mom did the best she could for me and my brother. My dad left when I was three. She worked two jobs trying to get us out of the projects and get us to a better side of town. And uh, I found alcohol, and that was all that mattered in my life anymore. By the time I was 15, I quit school, and my knight in shining armor came in, and he robbed drugstores for a living. <laughs> wow. Life really meant something then, you know, and so we started gallivanting around the southeast and uh, robbing drugstores, and the chances are when you live like that, you're going to get caught, and we did, and uh, he got sentenced to 40 years in Parchment, Mississippi, and uh, I was a juvenile, so they let me go, and so I was 17 years old, and I was living on the streets. And I had to do the things that you got to do to get that next drink. And a lot of them things I'm not proud of. But you know, every day when these baby blues open, it was who am I going to con, rob, cheat, manipulate, whatever it took to get that next drink. Yeah, I heard a speaker, I think it was Wino Joe, he said, every morning when he woke up and he threw his arm off the bed, if it was carpet, it was going to be a good day. And if it was concrete, it was going to be a bad day, you know. And that's about the way it was for me, you know. I just never knew. I never knew. Uh, by the time I was 18, I had a felony, and I was in the real court then. You know, I wasn't a juvenile anymore. And I, I went in front of that judge, and um, he gave, uh, I can remember him saying some things that were beyond my comprehension, you know. And he sentenced me to 10 years, and he suspended it. And he gave me five years probation. And he said some things like, get a job, you know, <laughs> go to work, go to school, do something. And I left that courtroom that day, and uh, I did what any good alcoholic did, would do. I, took, I needed a drink, and I stopped and got me a drink. And uh, I don't know about you, but I didn't do probation well drinking. Uh, it just didn't work out, and I never reported. Um, and so about this time, my keen alcoholic mind started trying to figure out what the problem was. Y'all ever wanted to just figure it all out, you know? I used to want to say, what? Why did I turn out this way? Did my mom drop me on my head when I was a baby, you know? And we had an old-timer in our group that used to say all the time, it really don't matter how the jackass got in the ditch. How are you going to get him out? And that's what I live by today. It really, I don't know. She probably did drop me on my head, but it don't matter. I know today that if I take a drink, I don't act right. So anyway, this keen alcoholic mind started trying to figure out what the problem was, and I did. I figured it out. Montgomery, Alabama was my problem. And there were more police there than there were people. And they were always picking on me. So I, had, I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move to Texas, Dallas, Texas. And I'm going to move out there, and life's going to be great. And I had this beautiful vision in my head. I could see it. Me on a ranch with a cowboy. Horses, cows, sipping good whiskey. Oh, it was beautiful. And so I hitchhiked to Texas, which would be your first clue. It wasn't going to be that great. And, uh, and I got to Texas. You know, when they talk about these geographical cures we take, and, you know, I guess I was trying to take one, and I had a bounty hunter in Montgomery looking for me because I had some new felonies, and that'll get you moving a little quicker on a geographical cure. So I moved out, I hitchhiked out to Texas, and I got out to Dallas and took a drink, and I was just like a Tasmanian devil. 
You know, when I first came, first came into AA, they used to say, wherever you go, there you are. And I used to say, what in the hell does that mean, you know? But today I know what it means. I went to Texas and I took a drink and there I was. And I was roaring around Texas, got a job in a bar down on Harry Hines Boulevard. And that's right where you need to be in, in Dallas if, you, if you're an alcoholic. And I stayed out there a couple years and... Uh, you know, when you're living out there on the run, you get tired, and I did. I got real tired after a couple years of it, and I did what a lot of good alcoholics would do. You know, I called Mommy and wanted to come back to Alabama and face some music, and she got me an attorney. And so I went back and I went in front of that judge that had gave me the probation, and he, he gave me that 10-year sentence that he suspended. And I can remember laying in that jail and I was scared, you know, I was scared to death. The only thing I knew about prison is what I had seen on TV, you know, and I said, I'm going to go up to that prison and they're going to slap me down and take my, all my stuff. Y'all know those movies. I mean, all my stuff, you know, and, and, uh, and I was scared to death, you know, and I, I laid in that jail and I said that old jailhouse prayer that so many of us know, God, if you'll just get me out of this one. I swear I'll never drink again. And you know what? The doors didn't bang open. And I said, see, there's no God. And if there is a God, I've been dealt a pretty bad hand. And that was, that was my perception of the whole deal. So you know that I didn't get out, and I did go up to Julia Tutwiler Prison for women. It's the only uh, women's prison in the state. And, uh, you know, the book talks about that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And I'm going to tell you, I could stand up here for hours, just like most of us could, and tell you about that over and over. You know, waking up places where I don't know where I am, panhandling, sleeping in abandoned houses, begging for money. You know, it goes on and on and on and on. And this was one more of those times, that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. They took us up to that prison on a chain gang. They took us in the back gate. And they stripped you down and they sprayed you down like an animal because for the next two years, that's exactly how I lived, like an animal. But you know, after a few days in that prison and I saw that maybe I could survive it, this keen alcoholic mind started trying to figure it out. What's the problem? And I said, I know what my problem is, drugs. <laughs> drugs are my problem. Look what, what they have done. Look where I'm at. And when I get out, I am through with drugs. It is drinking only. <laughs> and I might smoke a little weed because that's God's herb, you know, but it's, you know, it's, it's drinking only. So for the next two years, I stayed in that prison, and I went to a few AA meetings. Um, and, and the truth is, and you'll hear a lot of people say this, I went because they had coffee and cookies. That's why I went. Um, I don't remember anything about those meetings except for one thing, the little lady that brought them in every other week. That's all I remember about the meetings. And she was about this tall, and her name was Margaret D. from Montgomery. She wore red lipstick. And she talked like this, hey, sugar. And she kissed you right on the cheek and left lipstick all over you. And I asked her one day, I said, do they pay you to come up to this place, this dungeon? And she said, oh, no, honey, I come up here for free and for fun because every one of you ladies are doing my time for me. 
And I've never forgot her saying that. And when I got sober, I had the opportunity to, to be her friend and spend a lot of time with her. And I, when I grow up, I want to be just like her because she, she's gone on to the big meeting in the sky now, but I want to tell you how she went out with dignity. She got real sick her last couple of years, and they had to put her in a nursing home. Last time I saw her, she had started a meeting in the nursing home. <laughs> and I had to go speak there, and there was little wheelchairs all in a little circle all around she carried this message to the final end. Man, I want to be just like her. So anyway, that's all I remember about the meetings. Only thing I did was ran around that prison, playing all the prison games, making julep. That's what our homemade brew was up there. We'd make it with anything we could get our hands on, yeast, any kind of fruit. I mean, it was, it was, it'd get you drunk, but it was, whoo, sometimes it was chunky. <laughs> and I... And we'd have to let it, put it in these empty locker boxes there in the prison. And I can remember sometimes at night, you'd hear, boom, and you'd know it had blown up. It'd blow the whole <laughs> locker box up. So that's all I did while I was in prison is run around just staying drunk and high and just, you know, went to a couple of those meetings, didn't hear nothing. You know, it was great for old people. It wasn't for me. Um, and they let me out after about two years on the early parole. And my mom picked me up at the front gate, and uh, we started down Highway 231. Now remember the beautiful vision, the just drinking, and uh, I could see it. You know, the whole time I was there, I had this beautiful vision, White House picket fence, sipping some good, you know, whiskey. It was great. So my mom picked me up. We started down that highway. I stopped at the first convenience store to get me a beer, because that was the program. I drank that first beer, and I was just like a Tasmanian devil. Back at NEO, back doing everything. You know, the hardest thing for me ever to admit was I was an alcoholic. You know, my Uncle Clarence is an alcoholic. Look at him. I'm not an alcoholic. Call me anything. You can call me a drug addict because that's cool. You can even call me a mental patient. I don't care. But I'm not an alcoholic. That's Clarence. And why that was so hard for me to accept, I don't know. Because this is how I drank. You know, when I was in prison, that's all I did. When they let me out... I drank nonstop. I mean, I didn't work, I didn't do anything, but just drink. I drank at a bar in Montgomery that never closed. It was open 24-7. It was called the Honey for the Bears. Now just get a vision of it. You can just, you know, you can imagine. And it was good for people like me that didn't have a job, a car, a house, or anything, because you could just stay down there and drink for days and days, and not, you didn't have to leave, you know? And you just drink until you couldn't hold your eyes open anymore. Then you could go over to a booth and just pass out. Then you just come to and you'd be right back up there, buy me a drink, baby, you know, and, and you never left. And you just sat in there like a vulture waiting for people like Clancy to come in, you know, buy me a drink, baby. And since I've been sober, you know, I, I watched that movie, Barfly, and it made me sick because that was me. That was me. That's how I lived. So that's the way it was. I was an NEO, back on everything, running around like a Tasmanian devil, until they locked me up again. This time I went back in front of that judge, and I had several felonies. Somewhere in this alcoholic, keen alcoholic mind, I decided I was a doctor, and I was writing my own prescriptions. And uh, <laughs> Alabama don't take too kindly to that. And uh, 
So I had all these felonies, was back in front of this judge, and it, it really the grace of God that um, he sentenced me to a 10-year sentence running wild with the sentence I had. So I went back to that prison, and I had 20 years. And I'm sitting back in that infirmary, and this keen alcoholic mind starts trying to figure out what happened. And I said, I know what it is. I shouldn't have never drank that hard liquor. I'm crazy on hard liquor. <laughs> this time it's beer only. <laughs> you know, I, when I say this, it sounds so crazy, but you guys know that we have tried all those angles, and the big book talks about it. You could have came up there with your big book, and you could have said, but Tammy, blah, 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 blah. But see, the thing is, I believe with all my heart and soul that I'd be able to do it. The big book calls it a delusion that somehow, someday, I'd be able to drink like other people. And I believed it. I lived in that delusion. It sounds crazy standing up here saying it, but I believe this time's going to be different. Here's how. When I get out, it's beer only. Not even going to smoke any weed. No hard liquor, no drugs, no nothing. So I stayed up at that prison about a year and a half. Went to a couple of meetings, the same little deal. They let me out after a year and a half. My mom picked me up at the front gate. We started down Highway 231. Stopped at the same convenience store, got a six-pack of beer, because I needed a beer after all that. Drank that first beer and was like a Tasmanian devil out there running, running hard, until they locked me up again. Now, some of you were sitting there like this. Good Lord, I'm tired of going to prison. You think you're tired of going to prison? I was tired of going to prison. I'm going to tell you right now. So they locked me up again. This was my third trip back. And, you know, I think sometimes, I don't know what this keen alcoholic mind probably was trying to figure out, okay, this time it's going to be light beer only. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but the grace of God, once again, this, this go around, they had the handy-dandy treatment centers in Corrections. And so I always, when I'm speaking in Alabama, I tell the newcomers, you know, if you don't get it here with these nice people in AA, Department of Corrections will give you treatment. Free treatment. Long treatment. And, and, and you will finish it before you get out. So when I went back for this third time, they had this treatment. And you're not going to believe this. They recommended that I needed it, you know. And uh, so I couldn't get out of it. So I went in treatment and... Uh, I am a graduate of the WINGS program, Julia Tutwiler Prison, and uh, I completed that treatment. And afterwards, they made me the inmate counselor assistant. Woo! <laughs> I was big stuff up there, that prison boy. And a lot of things happened for me when I was in treatment. A lot of things did happen. Um, one of the things, we had speakers that came in every Friday into our treatment dorm and, and they would speak. And one night my counselor told me to go up to the front gate and meet the speaker. And I, you know, I was like, well, I wasn't planning on going. She said, you go meet this young lady and make her feel comfortable. Because, you know, some people are scared coming in the prison. So I went up to the front gate to meet her, and it was the girl I took my first drink of alcohol with. I hadn't seen her in 11 years, you know. And there she was, just smiling, and her little eyes just gleaming and glistening. She said, I've been sober a year. And I said, huh, you, there's no way that you are that happy and sober, first of all. And evidently, they got some good drugs that I don't know about making you look that happy. And so she came in, and she gave her a little goofy talk. And uh, 
I always say that. She's my sponsor now, and she makes her mad. And I, but, you know, anyway, you'd have to know her to believe it. But anyway, she came in, and she shared her, her story with us in that prison, and she planted a seed for me. And I hear a lot of people say they don't go in the jails and they don't go in the prisons to carry the message because they've never been to jail. Well, thank God she didn't say that because she had never been to jail and she had never been to prison. But she was willing to come in there that night and carry a message of hope to me and planted a seed for me. So if you get the opportunity to go behind the walls, please go. You never know who you're going to see in there. Um, another experience, I'll tell you one more. Speakers came all the time. There was another speaker that came in, and his name was Joe S. And uh, he had long hair, wore his leathers in, rode a Harley. And I said, come on, there's no way you can ride a Harley Davidson and not at least smoke pot. Come on. <laughs> and I've had a Harley Davidson in sobriety, and I know you can do that. But uh, I did, then I just couldn't comprehend that. So Joe came in and he, he uh, gave his talk. And um, I always, we could ask questions after the speakers. And I always sat on the back row and asked the same question to every speaker. Just what do you do for fun? I asked every speaker that. And they would start trying to tell me. Well, um, we go to meetings and um, we go to Shoney's and we go bowling. And we go to each other's house, and, and you know, and I'm sitting in this prison thinking, should I just blow my brains out, or <laughs> can I stand this much fun? And I mean, they're serious, boy, they're trying to make me understand how great it is. And I'm just so I asked Joe that same question the guy in his Harley do, just what do you do for fun? And I'll never forget him looking up at me, and he said, I tell you this, honey. I guarantee you I'm having a hell of a lot more fun than you're having sitting in prison. <laughs> and I've never forgot that. Our perceptions have to change, you know, and I, I still use that as a rule working with newcomers, you know. You're wasting breath trying to tell them what we do for fun. It's just a waste of air. So I tell them, you're not going to believe this. One day, going to jail, Losing your kids, peeing in your pants, sleeping in abandoned houses, sleeping under pool tables. One day, all that stuff's not going to be fun. I know it's hard to believe right now. <laughs> but if you just hang on one day. So a lot of good speakers, great counselors. <clears throat> they told me everything that they tell us to do. You know, go to a meeting. Uh, go to a meeting the first night, you need to go to meetings every night, get you a sponsor, read the book, you know, all they tell us. And uh, I had a lot of yeah buts. Y'all know the yeah buts? I said, yeah, I'll go, to spon I'll, I'll go to meetings, but I'm not going the first night I get out. I got other things to do. And I'll go to meetings, but I don't think I need one every night. Come on, that's a little much. And I'll get a sponsor, but... She's had to been to prison at least twice, you know, and everything they said, it was, yeah, but, yeah, but. So they let me out. I didn't go to a meeting the first night. I didn't go to a meeting the second day. And within that, on that second day, I was drunk again. Within five months, I was in my parole officer's office, and he said, you're going back. 
Now, I know today that this was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Because this was the meanest parole officer I'd ever had, and I'd been on parole, probation, or locked up since I was 18. He wore a hearing aid, and he turned it up and down and up and down. <laughs> and I said, I tell you what, if you won't send me back, I know what I needed to do. I just didn't do it. If you'll give me one chance. And he said, I tell you what, I'll give you 48 hours to get yourself somewhere, and if not, I'm sending you back. And I know today that was God doing for me. I know that without a shadow of a doubt. So I called my counselor and she got me in a place in Sylacauga, Alabama. And it was a, a, a lodge and it was, it was a beautiful place. I went there for detox and um, this is what happened to me as I remember it. You know, I was sitting out here in this field on a picnic table and I, and I just started crying and I couldn't stop. And I reached out to this God that I have had no understanding at the time. And I just begged for help. You know, I said, if I can't live out here on the streets and I've got to go back to that place, then just please help me end it all right now. And I know today it's what's in the big book, that I was at that jumping off place. You know, I couldn't imagine life with alcohol or without it. And I truly, truly wish for the end. And to me, what happened that day was a spiritual experience. You know, the big book talks about it being an emotional rearrangement. Well, the next thought that came to me that day was, AA cannot be as bad as the way you're living now. Now, that don't sound very spiritual to you, but it, it was pretty spiritual to me because if you had asked me the day before about AA, I would have said, AA's great, but it's a bunch of old men. And, you know, they they sit around, they talk about fishing and drink coffee, and they're too old to drink. And when I get that old, I'll quit too, you know. And, and I would tell you everything that was awful and negative about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I had never been. So to me that day, that was pretty spiritual, that AA cannot be as bad as the way you're living. So I went through that little detox, and when I got out, I did everything that we know that we do. You know, and what they told me to do. I went to a meeting the first day, and I started going to meetings every day. You know, I'll always be so grateful to all of you in Alcoholics Anonymous for loving me unconditionally. Because I was pretty sick when I got here. You know, I was a legend in my own mind. I was borderline institutionalized. I walked around them meetings looking like an idiot. I had a big old switchblade, chains, brogans. I mean, I'd be in the kitchen and get mad at these old timers and be, I'll carve my initials in their bald head. <laughs> now, just think about how that looks. You know, it's embarrassing even today to even think about it. You know, I had a lot of trouble getting a sponsor, you know? I mean, they weren't like... I mean, you see women today come in, and we're all over them. Here's my number. Call, call. Like, you know, they weren't doing that to me. They were not gathering around, and I didn't have any phone numbers, you know. Um, but I love Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and I love thinking back to when I first came in. And I, I love watching newcomers and watch their face when they hear in all this, our little lingo. And, you know, we have our own little talk going on, and... I can remember when I went in, they'd say, the first drink gets you drunk. And I went, what in the hell were y'all drinking, you know? <laughs> I mean, moonshine or something? I mean, I didn't know. And uh, 
There was an old timer, and they used to say this a lot, some of the old timers. If you came in young, you know, and, and I, was, I was 29 when I sobered up, they'd say, I spilt more on my tie than you drank. And I'd look at that old geezer and I'd say, well, you shouldn't have spilt so much. You might have got here sooner, you know. And, uh, and you know how when you get the real sick ones coming into your meetings and you go, just keep coming back. And you say it with that tone. Well, I, at, at first I thought you were being nice to me. And then I figured out that you were being sarcastic. So then I wanted to fight you when you said it to me. I'd be like, no, you keep coming back and be all in the meeting doing this. Now, just imagine. It was crazy. But I finally did get a sponsor that was willing to take on the task. And I always say she had problems other than alcoholism to be up to it. But I'll always be so grateful to this lady. Um, she taught me so much about loving AA and the home group service and uh and I'll, I, you know, I'll just always be so grateful to her. She, um, when, and I just want to tell you quickly about what's happened in my life. Kind of going through the steps a little bit. I'm not going to do like a step study, but, uh, you know, when I think about the first step, I had to drink, and I had to drink every drop, and I had to try every angle. I had to run out. I mean, I just, I couldn't think of another way to drink and, and, and live. I just couldn't. And when I think about the second step, I think about this lady. You know, when I was new, like a lot of newcomers, I had a problem every five minutes. And I'd call her up, wah, wah, wah. And she'd say, okay, meet me at the group. And I'd be like, all right, she's going to loan me the $50 or whatever it was I needed that day. <laughs> and we'd get over to the AA group, and she would hand me the Comet and the toilet scrubber. So I'd be back there scrubbing those nasty AA bathrooms thinking, what does this have to do with staying sober? And does she know who I am, you know? And uh, when I think about that, I think about step two, of coming to believe in the power of suggestion, anything greater than me. I didn't know what scrubbing those toilets had to do with staying sober, but she said she suggested it, and I did it. She suggested I went to a meeting every day. I didn't think I needed that many. She suggested it. I did it. You know, the days started adding up. She, she said pray in the morning and pray at night. So I did it. And I was starting to stay sober. So when I think of step two, I think of scrubbing those toilets. Now, I try that with the girls I sponsor today. <laughs> I'll be like, meet me at the group. And we'll get over there, and I'll hand them the comment, the toilet scrubber, and they'll be like, I don't think so. I just got my nails done. So. <laughs> it don't always work. I took the third step prayer with this lady, and she, she was a big book. She went straight by the big book, and we took the third step prayer out of that book together on our knees. And, I, you know, I don't remember much about that except feeling a little silly praying with another person. But it's only looking back that I see how God started working in my life, you know. Things started happening, and without my permission. And I'll tell you one little story that just, and I mean, I could tell you a lot of stories. Like, first of all, my knife size started going down. That was a good thing, you know. But this one little story about, uh, you know, making that decision to turn my will and my life over the care of God as I understood him. Um, I had never worked. Never worked in my life except when I was locked up and they made us work. 
And, uh, you know, it was you guys that told me uh, to get a job. I was a bum. I didn't know what that had to do with getting sober either. But one day I was sitting at home watching soap operas, because that's what I did. And uh, I'd been sober maybe six, eight months. And a commercial came on, and it said, adults, go back to school. And on the bottom of it, it said, financial aid available. Now, I'm an old con, and I know that's how you can get some money from the government. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go down there and try to get some of that free financial aid money. And so I went down to Troy University there in Montgomery, and there's people everywhere. Now, remember what I look like at this point now. These people are looking at me like, what is she doing here? Now, I quit school in the eighth grade. Took my GED at Julia Tutwiler Prison. Now, remember that. So I'm in this, there's people everywhere, and I walk up to this table. I said, I want to see about getting some of that financial aid money. That lady said, okay, we'll take this paper, this paper, go to the next table. So I did this around about three or four tables, asked the same thing. They sent me to the next table. I'm at the last table, and I said, I want to see about getting some of that financial aid money. And the lady looks at me and says, okay, well, do you want to go ahead and sign up for a class and you can get your financial aid money next week at the financial aid office? And I'm just standing there looking at her. And she said, how about history? I went, I guess history will be all right, lady. I mean, I... <laughs> so I get back out to my car and uh, I'm about to cry and I'm thinking, okay, I'm starting college in the morning. And I... Uh, and I don't even have a pencil, and, uh, and I'm taking history, and I don't even know who in the hell discovered America, okay? <laughs> and that's how it started. You know, I, I didn't really think that was possible. I mean, I only went through the eighth grade, okay? So I went back to my home group, because, you know, that's what we do, and to my sponsor. And all they would say was, you know what? If you keep your sobriety number one in your life, you can do whatever you want to, Tammy. Shoot for the stars. You know, I am so grateful that they told me that. You know, keep that sobriety number one. You can do whatever. And they were right. You know, when I'd go register for classes, it was all around my AA meetings. It was like, uh, no, can't take that class because AA, you know. And I went to that first class, and I passed with a C. And I thought, man, is this really possible, you know? And I think that third step that just kind of shows what started happening in my life I want to talk just a minute about the fourth and fifth step now I put those steps off as long as I could because you know I'm a gangster and uh, I'm a real gangster wannabe and uh, I can't just write anything down on paper and I just can't tell anybody about all this stuff so I put it off put it off like we do and I finally did a four step you know the best that I could to the best of my ability, and I went to my sponsor, and we did the fifth step, and she started telling me things. I was like, look, you don't need to be telling people that stuff, <laughs> you know? We clean up well. We really do. And so anyway, after all that energy of putting off the fourth step, and she told me, just like the big book, she said, you go get quiet for an hour, review the first five steps. You know, she told me exactly what to do with steps six and seven. But, you know, I didn't feel like doing all that because I was tired. And, I, you know, after all that fifth step, that should be enough, shouldn't it? So I didn't do it. I really didn't. I left there, and I just kept going. I went to a lot of meetings, though. I was busy. I was busy. I went to a lot of meetings. 
But I was getting sicker and sicker, you know, and I, my teachers tell me there's no standing still in this program, and I believe them. You're either moving forward or you're moving backward. And today I believe them, because what happened, the result of that was that I wasn't changing. And the result of that was that I found myself rolling around in the parking lot fighting another AA woman. <laughs> now that don't do much for your spiritual image in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and it didn't do much for my parole program either, uh, 18 years of parole. My parole officer said, Tammy, you can't be fighting those people at AA meetings. You're going to have to quit going there. I was like, oh, I can't do that. And she signed a warrant on me, and she should have. I mean, she really should have. Um, but it was the biggest turning point in my sobriety because I saw then there's no standing still. And there I was. I wasn't changing. I, I wasn't drinking, but I was that same old person, walking around looking like an idiot with a knife and meetings. You know, I wasn't useful. I mean, the women were scared to death of me, and if any women came there, I'd run them off. So I wasn't useful at all. And it was the biggest turning point for me because I realized there's no standing still. So it was either take a drink or go back through those steps, one or the other. And by the, thank God that I went back, started over with my sponsor and went back through the steps. And this time I realized the power that is in step six and seven. You know, you can write down what a piece of garbage you are and then tell somebody what a piece of garbage you are. What's that do? You know, and it was in six and seven that... With all my heart, I said, okay, God, if you're so powerful, here it is, the good and the bad. And you take it and you do with me what you will and take away those defects that are standing in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. I wasn't useful. What Women weren't asking me to sponsor them. And so it was at this point when I did that that God started changing me a little at a time. You know, my group says they measured it by my knife size going down, and today I don't even have a knife, you know? And so that was kind of what happened. And, um, you know, it's like I got a new pair of glasses. You know, they talk about that God consciousness, and honest to goodness, that day I felt it for the first time in my life. When I honestly took that sixth and seventh step, I mean, it was like I was at a park, and it was just an old park. And after I got all spiritual, it was like there was trees and there was a swan going across the pond. I think it was a duck, but that day it looked like a swan because I was pretty spiritual. You know, it was like a new pair of glasses. Of course, then I got my car and in traffic, and you know how we are in traffic. But anyway, so I knew there's no standing still. Now I'm going to tell you about the eighth and the ninth step. My first go around, this was my war cry. See if it sounds familiar. I'm just hurting me. I really don't have that many amends. Because I mainly just hurt me. That was my war cry. But when I honestly went back through these steps, I don't even know how I could live in that delusion that I only hurt me. Because I'm going to tell you, I was just like the book said, I was a tornado. Roaring through the people's lives. And especially the people that love me the most. I'm going to tell you, that mother of mine, she stuck with me through every bit of that. All those years in and out of prison. And I can remember standing in that courtroom in front of that judge. And he'd be sentencing me to 10 years in the penitentiary. And I would be looking at him with all the hate that was in me. And I could hear my mama 
crying behind me because that's her baby girl going to the penitentiary. But I'm only hurting me. My mama came to that prison every Sunday and she cried when she came and she cried when she left. I never shed one tear, but I'm only hurting me. I have a grandmother that's 91, and God has blessed me to be sober and spend these last years with her. And I'm her only granddaughter, and she loves me to death. And in my drunkenness, I was at her house, robbing her house. And I knocked the table, uh, her table over in the Bible. This is a paper came out of that Bible, and I started picking them up. And every one of them were prayers for me. Because her preacher told her she put her prayers in her favorite verse, God would hear them. I was robbing her house, but I'm only hurting me. You know, I have one brother, one real brother, and, uh, you know, he's always worshipped the ground I walk onto. And when my grandfather died, he left my brother all his stuff. He didn't have a lot of money. He left him coin collections and knives and rifles. And I stole every bit of that stuff and sold it for a bottle of wine. But I'm only hurting me. You know, I had to go back through these steps and get out of that delusion. And honestly, look at, I was a tornado. And you guys gave me the opportunity to go back, almost like a second chance, and try to amend this to the best of my ability. You know, I have a great relationship with my mom. I'm going to tell you one of men that means so much to me because you told me I could do this. When I graduated from that college with my bachelor's degree, I walked with that stupid cap and gown thing, you know, and I didn't do it for me. I did it for my mom. And I can tell you she was the proudest mother in there. You guys gave that to my mom. You know, my grandmother, every Sunday I go eat with her. And as you can tell, she cooked some good biscuits. And uh, I could never do that before because I was too self-centered. It was all about me. You gave me that opportunity. You know, she's something else. She's, her health is failing a little bit. And, uh, but up until a couple of months ago, I tell you, she's a trooper, 91 years old, still drives a car. And she drove it through the farmer's market last year, straight through it. <laughs> She told it out and got her a brand new one. So if y'all are ever in Montgomery and you see a silver Buick run, you know, get out of the way. My brother's an attorney today. He went back to school since I've been sober and he's an attorney. That's a resentment in itself. Uh, I live right down the hill from him. We have a great relationship. That's what you guys have gave me and the 12 steps by working those 12 steps. You know, I continue to try to grow and um, have a better understanding of my higher power, God. And, uh, you know, I can tell you honestly tonight that the biggest blessing that I have from being sober is that big hole that was in me that the wind could blow through and that only alcohol and drugs could touch just a little bit the pain, that hole. You know, today I do have a God of my own understanding. And honest to goodness, before I met a bunch of drunks, I never thought that was possible. 
You know, you guys let me come in like it was spiritual kindergarten. Because somewhere in my mind, I heard God was taking names and checking later. And he had a 357 in one hand and a ball bat in the other. I don't know where all this came from. And I had all these negative views and a bunch of drunks allowed me to come in like it was spiritual kindergarten and gave me a chance, you know, to have this relationship, the biggest blessing of all. Um, my time's almost up, but I do want to talk about carrying this message a little bit and some, some blessings for me. When I was a couple years sober, um, I was able to go back in that prison, that same prison, and take an AA meeting and uh, tell those women they didn't have to live like that anymore. There was another way. And I was able to hold my head high and not feel better or less than anybody. You know, one of the nicest things that was ever said about me was said by one of those inmates there. You know, I listened to a lot of speaker takes, and I, I love Clancy, and Johnny H. is one of my heroes in the program. And when I was sobering up, I'd listen to his tapes all the time. And he'd tell this story about when he was in prison and how the AA people were so dedicated and committed they were going to be at that prison and bring the meat no matter what. And one night he was out there waiting on the guard, I mean, waiting on the AA meeting, and the guard said, Johnny, they're not coming tonight. Johnny said, them AA people will be here. And the guard said, they're not coming. There's a blizzard. The roads are closed for 15 miles. They won't be here. He said, they will be here. He said a few minutes later, he heard a, a bell, a horse, and a sleigh came up, that, the AA man coming in. You know, and I used to just get chill bumps, and he talked about how dedicated and committed they were. One night there was a tornado there in Alabama, and I, my inmate that chaired the meeting was waiting on me. And uh, the guard said, she's not coming tonight. Tammy won't be here. A tornado just hit five miles from the prison. And that inmate said, yeah, Tammy will be here. And she believed in my dedication and my commitment to Alcoholics Anonymous that much. And sure enough, I did go. You know, I got out of my car, and the, my umbrella turned inside out, and went in and they were in a tornado drill. I had 200 inmates in a big book and we had a meeting. You know, some of them liked it, some of them didn't. <laughs> and so many things have happened. You know, you guys told me, get a job, you're a bum. And so I was like, what does, what does that have to do with getting sober? So when I was about, I don't know, it was right after I started school, maybe a year or so sober, I said, I'll show them that I can't get a job with my record. I went and put applications in everywhere, like banks, uh, corporate <laughs> offices, um, the state of Alabama revenue department. <laughs> and you're not gonna believe this, but they hired me at the revenue department. <laughs> and I went to work there a, a year sober, and um, you know, it was my first job I'd ever had, my first job that I'd ever worked. And uh, those ladies loved me there. And when they hired me, they said, look, Tammy, the big boss said, you ain't got to tell all these women about everything. You know, because there was like 80 women that worked in there. But them women loved me, you know, and they never asked. I never told them. But every afternoon we'd walk out, and me and these little straight ladies to the parking lot. And the inmates worked downtown in Montgomery, and they come in a big blue bus. So we're walking the parking lot every day, and the big blue bus comes around, and all them inmates are like, Hey, Tammy, you know. <laughs> they never asked. I never told them, you know. <laughs> but after I, you know, after I graduated from college, um, 
I got a job there with Family Services, and uh, they threw me a party. And those little ladies cried because I was leaving. And that was the first job I'd ever had. You know, they liked me that much. And I went to work at Family Services as a social worker. And boy, that was a, a very stressful job. It was very stressful. My counselor called me from the prison and said, look, Tammy, we got an opening and I want you to come apply for it, a counselor. And I was like, no, no, no. And you know, this I hate old timers because they always say things like this. Well, why don't you just come up and do the footwork and put the rest in God's hands, you know? <laughs> so I went up to the prison and applied for that position and, uh, and they, they offered me the position. So I went to work at, at that same prison that I had been in all those years as a counselor. I said, you know, God's got a sense of humor. I'm going to do a life sentence before it's all over with, you know? <laughs> and I worked there for about... Uh, almost four years and it was great what an experience and uh the treatment field just wasn't for me and thank goodness it is for some people but it wasn't for me and so i it was really starting to affect my aa and uh of course it goes back to your sponsor because when i first took the job she was like tammy i don't really think it's a good idea because you love aa so much and it all gets and so you know i told you so from her so I started praying, you know, God, it's affecting my AA. I got where I was turning the phone off at night because I just couldn't listen one more minute, you know, and praying and praying, and I promise you this job I have now just fell in my lap. I mean, somebody called me on the phone and said, look, you'd be perfect for this. Come, will not you come apply? And so today I'm back with Family Services, and um, I'm a trainer, and I train social workers about substance abuse and alcoholism and the effects on families and man I love it you know what a job I, I mean it's great for me you know I I have so many blessings in my life so many I mean I've got a windshield in my car any of y'all ever not had a windshield in your car <laughs> you know I try to serve AA and I've served in a lot of ways and I love sponsoring women and I usually get oh, I get some good ones but I want to tell you a little story about sponsorship. You know, I, I told you how I was, and uh, I think it was last year, maybe a little over a year ago, this girl's getting out of prison. She'd been out maybe two months, and I was sponsoring her. Now they bust a sag. They wear their clothes sagging down. She had braids all in her hair and big old switchblade knife on her side, chains. And so we're outside of the meeting, and she comes out, and she says, if she looks at me one more time, I'm going to slice her throat. And I was like, oh, my God, let's pray. Let's pray first, you know. And, and I thought, you talk about full circle, you know. My mom used to tell me, when you grow up and have kids, they're going to put you through everything I put, you know, you put me through. And I said, well, I don't have kids, but sponsorship, you know, that full circle. You know, my time's about up, and, and I really want to thank the committee for having me. Um, I want to close with a prayer that's real special to me, and it's, God, I know I'm not what I could be, and God, I know I'm not what I should be, but thank you, God, I'm not what I used to be. Thank y'all for having me.